From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, our weekly show on sports analytics. We're doing it virtually during the time of pandemic, but we are here every week. You've got the whole crew, Eric Bradlow from off the main, 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 mainland, somewhere off the mainland in the Northeast, Shane Jensen, City Center, Philadelphia, Audie Weiner, mainline Philadelphia, and Cade Massey out here in Bucks County. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon, yeah. We are going to do our usual stick, which is a half an hour, first half of the show on, or thereabouts, on the coronavirus. We think, uh, one, it, it involves many of the forecasting and statistical principles we talk about a lot in this class, but in this course, in this show, that is. But also, we can't talk about sports these days without talking about coronavirus, and so it's important context for us. Uh, it seems ever more so these guys days, the, these days, guys. And I'm curious, I'm always curious, after a week of not seeing you, as the world evolves, what's caught your eye? I'm very interested. What's caught your eye in the world of coronavirus in the last week? Well, again, I'll just go quickly and say, you know, it's back to what Adi said last week. People are starting to recognize that maybe since the number of tests is going up in many places, um, that's probably not the best measure. In other words, the number of cases as to what's going on. Um, and actually, it is, though, the trajectory, meaning the rate at which testing is going up, which can be measured, and also the number of positive cases. And so when you see people talk about Florida right now or California or Texas, the concerning part is that while the rate of testing is going up, um, the number of, given you've gotten tested, the number of positive cases, the rate is going up, and that's the, and hospitalization rates are going up. And again, that's back to why there's this increased level of concern. So that's, again, what's caught my eye is looking in some sense at the two plots, the testing plot versus the, given you've been tested, what's the positivity rate and what's the level of complications. Right. And we've talked in this, we talked before about testing is hard. It's been hard because of these things that you've just described. We're getting better data on it, but more concrete are deaths and somewhere in between is hospitalizations. They're lagged, of course. Hospitalizations, I just ran the numbers most recently on Texas, and it's just this massive spike since the end of May. It's really, really disturbing. Adi, you're always crunching these numbers and you look yeah. at it across the country. What are you seeing? Well, hospitalizations is, the, is much less reliable and regularly produced around the country. So Texas does produce hospitalizations, but they don't produce new hospitalizations. Um, they, uh, the total hospitalizations. Actually, they, I think they might have a, a, a way to figure out more or less how many new ones you're getting. Those are definitely up in Texas. They're starting to climb in Florida. Um, Arizona, I heard. Arizona as well, yeah. but nothing like the, the rates at which things were accelerating in March. So you're still seeing, and deaths in particular, those are still more or less just a little bit up, but hardly noticeable. Um, so what you're still seeing is really low death rates, and now you're starting to see cases and hospitalizations increase. It's not clear what, what that will bring. It's a lot of um, new information coming down the pike. I did find a particular, uh, th there's a couple places which are really extraordinarily interesting in, this, in the sense that they're different. Adi, um, just a clarification point for yeah. our listeners. When you, when you talk about death rates, I just want to be clear. Are you talking about the marginal death rate? Are you talking about the marginal. death rate given a, okay. So uh, it's always scaled. It's always scaled per, I usually scale death rates per, per 100,000 um, residents. Okay. Okay. So 
like all of that is scale. Do you have any reason to believe that the death rates given hospitalization right now are lower? Back at it'll be lower. You have yes, a lot, a lot of reasons to believe that. Um, A couple, there's two major. Well, I could say probably three general reasons why I think it's it's lower. One is that there was scarcity of beds at one point. So people were generally turned away from the hospital because they weren't that serious. Now, at this point, not even not a chance. In fact, a much more nefarious uh, um, conclusion was come to by one of my doctor friends who told me that hospitals need patients to function and they're so empty because we cleared them out of all the elective surgeries, everything else. They're trying to get people to in the hospitals who, who early on they were genuinely turning away. So the actual numbers of hospitalizations is is at probably a lower um, gravity, you might call it, uh, on average gravity than it was earlier. That's the first piece. The second piece, we have better treatments. We unquestionably have better treatments. So we talked last time about the, the, um, the steroid, and that seems to be quite clearly a, uh, a good um, and effective way of keeping people alive. Well, that, that, one, that one is just, I mean, that wouldn't have probably be, been underlying. They wouldn't have already been using that for the last few ah, weeks. So here's, what I, got, here's right? what I learned. I actually did a, did a workshop with CHOP. Turns out that WHO, the WHO real, real said, quickly, CHOP, CHOP, CHOP is, the, is the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, and they asked me to kind of talk about the things that I've been observing on, on uh, coronavirus to a group of their physicians. Data, it's actually built as a data science kind of uh, a, a meetup. And what was interesting is I had a chance to talk to uh, one of the world's experts in, um, in cytokine storms. His name is David uh, Fagenbaum. He's a, he's a, a doctor, a professor at, at uh, University of Pennsylvania. Um, and he actually was the former quarterback of Georgetown's uh, football team. So maybe he he's potentially has a lot of, to say to us in a lot of other areas. But he told me that um, people were using the steroid and had been using it pretty widely, universally. Right, in right. fact, University of Pennsylvania used it for about 22% of their patients, even though who said don't use it. They legitimately said don't use it. And nevertheless, enough doctors were doing it. And in fact, the anecdotal evidence was that it was working. So why, you, why could you maybe just a discussion there? Um, most a lot of people die from COVID, obviously, that have respiratory infections, decreased lung function, etc. Steroids have been known for a long time to improve situations with people having respiratory problems. Did you get any sense, Adi, why mm-hmm. someone would recommend not to use something that's known? Uh, yeah except except for the it's a a general immunosuppressant though so you have to be a little bit careful right right, with using steroids in immunocompromised situations right so so shane is completely right getting it at the right time is hard you don't want to turn someone's someone's immune system off just when they need it to be on Um, but the cytokine storm which is essentially the the immune immune system overdoing it is uh, clearly turned off by steroids. So apparently the reason for it, and this is a great Bayesian question here, we always talk about like, what do we learn from the past? It didn't work in SARS, SARS-1, I guess, SARS-CoV-1, which would be the, the previous round of this. And the inference was, since it didn't work the last time, it won't work this time and, and you shouldn't try it, it's too dangerous. Anyway, so many people were dying. I mean, I, heard, I mean, in certain places, the death rates, once you went on a ventilator, were so high that mm-hmm. physicians have this habit, a good habit, of trying stuff mm-hmm. to see if it makes a difference. And it's a very natural thing to try. Well, let me so ask here, you, buddy, is this yeah. the kind of situation based on Shane's comment where you might see, let's say on the x-axis, you know, you had kind of um, 
level of steroids that you gave someone on the y-axis you had the probability of recovery yeah. is it something that's going to be an inverted u where in other words you could give <laughs> someone too much steroids that it would yeah. shut off their immune system that while you're right you might help reduce their respiratory infection you might cause the immune system to shut off and eight other things would hurt yeah them. I, listen this is why this is why medicine is so hard i think the other variable is timing rather than dosage those are the two things and this is why it's so hard to determine scientifically whether something really works because it's there's so many variables and the thing about this one is that the number that you need to treat to save a life is really low it's amazingly low it's eight eight people who are who are in a ventilator if you give them you save for eight people that you treat, you save one life. That's an incredibly um, powerful effect. Uh, for people who are not on ventilators, who, who aren't going to go on a ventilator, it's hard to know that in advance, obviously. It's more like one in 20, one in 25. So that's the second reason why I believe that you'll see lower death rates. Um, then then you start to speculate. So three might be, where, well, we're sort of better at overall care in lots of little ways. Um, four might be that the virus isn't as, as uh, dangerous as it was. Five might be the people going into the hospitals are on average a lot younger, so therefore they have a better chance of living. That's a selection bias. Uh, you could probably figure out six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. Um, the, in the data itself, the thing that we're actually seeing is, is the lag is way past the lag that it was earlier. So typically it was about 10 days back in March, April for, for, for peak um, in once you saw a big increase in cases, you were seeing the big increase in, in deaths. You're not seeing the big increases anywhere yet. You're just starting to see it peak a little bit. You know, I mean, just poke their little head out of the, out of the, uh, the, 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 the curve. So it's, and it's way more than three weeks. So whatever's happening now, it's a lot slower than it was. And if you compare New York City, which was the epicenter in, in March, to anywhere else on the, on, in the United States and just pile, put them on top of each other, New York City makes everybody look like, you know, you know Kansas and, and Wizard of Oz. So, Adi, you're talking about changes in the course of this thing that are relatively positive, I'd say. Mm. But it's hard for me to look around the country and hear the reports and feel positive. And yeah. maybe it's because the treatments have gotten better. Um, and so the outcomes are a little bit better on a per case basis, but the number of cases seem to be growing so, so, so fast in some key areas, uh, very populous areas, California, Florida, Texas, Georgia, Arizona, that I'm, I have a hard time being optimistic. And so I'm, I'm curious kind of a, for a rounder view of things, and maybe, maybe I'm being too pessimistic, but I'd like to integrate the improved treatment and, and, and improved outcomes with the, the increased prevalence which see and a growing increased prevalence. Well, yeah, it's a good question. So for example, you guys remember at one point, just because of the immense rate of growth in New York, we were getting somewhere in the neighborhood, I think it's somewhere around 2000 deaths a day in the United States. Um, right now, I think we're down to somewhere in the 500 range, roughly per deaths per day. Uh, I mean, do you and guys, going down? Yeah, do you guys but I'm saying Back to what uh, Kay just said, given the, the heavy populous states where the rates are going up, do we see ourselves three weeks, four weeks, six weeks from now? Are we back to a thousand deaths per day in the United States? Well, I mean, it could, it could but I, I mean, mean <laughs> again, I think there's a lot to be said for the, the, the populations that are being tested now that these new cases are developing in versus previously. And it may just not be that, you know, we're ramping up testing and, and the people who are getting tested now are even more commonly people who are not like in these super vulnerable populations where you wouldn't necessarily see a kind of corresponding death rate come out the other side of this. I mean, I'm kind of, I was really, you know, that there was that Wired article that we kind of passed around looking at 
um, testing after uh, the Minnesota protests. So kind of, you know, somewhat fortunately, they really ramped up. It seems like they really ramped up testing right after the protests that were happening in Minneapolis. People were um, interested in whether the protests, not just in Minneapolis, but around the country, were going to lead to an increase. Yes, in cases, that's right. right? So, so some places implemented some heavy testing to identify exactly that effect. Yeah. And so, Shane, what did it tell us? Well, well, I mean, the the kind of the most encouraging part is that the proportion of positive of positive cases among those tested was very low. It's like on the like one percent level or so. Which is kind of standard. Apparently, that's just kind of what it's going to be in the community at low at low. That's right. But again, you have to think about that. You know, one of the reasons that's also low is because if you think about the demographics of the people that are being tested that that were at the protest versus, you know, our kind of previous waves back in, you know, April, March, April, May of people that were tested, we were testing back then we were only testing kind of older, mostly our older population that we saw as the most vulnerable. This is these protests are by no means a random sample of the population either, but they're, you know, certainly selected towards kind of, I, I think, a healthier demographic. Yeah, so let me so just the, respond. The article, the article also emphasized some of the things that we've been talking about and others have talked about for weeks, and that is the impact of masks and outdoors. So No, it is, it, it is encouraging for masks plus outdoor, mm-hmm, basically, mm-hmm, as, as mm-hmm. kind of really reducing transmission. Sorry, Adi. I'm I know. I, would, I, I think that, that your, your, your skepticism of the – it's not that – by the way, it's not that I'm being positive. I'm just saying I'm not see, we're not seeing deaths – really starting to emerge and it's late we should be seeing them emerge so that leads me to believe that when we do start seeing them and they will be there we're not going to see that massive spike that we saw earlier on i also think that and this is parallel what cade was saying the this the, i mean what, what shane was saying this the, the testing is reflecting of an entirely different kind of of population of cases now than when we were doing in in march it's it's an it's a younger group. It's it's it de- digs right away into people who are no symptoms. You you're getting tested. You don't you don't have anything like that earlier on. So my if I had to make a forecast and you know make me make me tell you something, we're never going to see the death spikes that we saw earlier on. We'll see lots of cases. We will see increases in deaths and hospitalizations, but the absolute you know terror that we were seeing in New York and New Jersey and places like Massachusetts, even Philadelphia, you're really just not seeing it. Um, one of the, the, the things that's, that's difficult is, of course, I don't seem to see any difference between the places that still have lockdowns and the places that don't. Like Florida doesn't ha- is open and they're getting spike, right? They're spiking in, in, in a whole bunch of big places. But California is too. And that's not spiking like Florida, but it's just growing. It's at the same place that Florida is. It took them three months to get there, but they're in the same place. So going forward, either Florida might explode, and of course, California won't, and we'll learn a lot more. So every week, there's just, we'll have much more to talk about. But it's, it's like you just don't understand it. Like there are places in Washington State, Yakima in particular, where it's, the cases are as prevalent as New York. I mean, it's unbelievable how much widespread virus there is. Yet again, you don't see the deaths coming and, 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 and they're ostensibly in lockdown. So why? We don't necessarily know. So how are we going to be able to isolate and learn really what's going on here? I mean, if this were a, you know, a, a company and there were 15 possible reasons why their sales were too low, I think we'd all go in there We'd look at their historical data. We do some analysis, but we would also suggest a bunch of randomized experiments to try different things. We try to isolate which dimensions there are. Um, it seems like what we know some weeks changes to the next week. 
back to Shane's point, I think one of the big concerns is that the mixing distribution is changing. In other words, it's not that surprising that the number of people who, uh, ha you know, get serious results, given you're tested, is changing because it's a different mixture of population, which is back to where Adi's point is about going to the marginal distribution. I mean, yes, 120,000 people have died, which is absolutely terrible, but it's not like the U.S. population has changed dramatically in that time, which is an advantage of looking at the marginal distribution as opposed to the conditional one. But how, how are we going to do this when we can't run yeah, massive I, series I, of randomized tests? Well, right. I see three, at least three like major kind of barriers to kind of treating this like it, it's a nice randomized controlled testing kind of situation. I mean, the part where it's almost impossible to randomize in any kind of real way with this. I mean, even random sample testing is is only just kind of coming, you know, into the forefront now. And I think the other part is compliance. You know, I mean, we kind of, I, I think, you know, we keep trying to make these links between kind of policy at like, say, the state level or whatever, it, comparing across states when really kind of like the basic behaviors are, are kind of presumably much more driving these things. Right. And there isn't necessarily going to be a, a you know, a, a a kind of consistent adherence to policy across across the board. Different states, you know, are going to have different levels of compliance with any type of policy. But I think even those are swamped by the third one, which is heterogeneity. I th I think yeah. you know these random kind of you know like why you know Montana is spiking right now versus like Wyoming, even though those two places should kind of act the same is probably more just kind of a fact you know there's kind of been random kind of outbreaks in Montana that are driving these numbers. And, you know, it's going to be kind of these little local outbreaks at, you know, outbreaks at local levels are going to be driving so much of this stuff. And we're looking at it at kind of a statewide level and wanting to associate with some kind of policy. Well, so one thing you're highlighting is, uh, I think, a big learning for everybody from this thing is that, that behavior matters. We can't just use these basic epidemiological models that don't consider behavior and that behavior varies across, you know, don't, across areas. But I would say, look, get, of course we can't run experiments here, but shy that, this is almost ideal for learning because of the heterogeneity and because mm -hmm. of the lags in this thing. The lags are one of the ways you get around one of the ways you identify causality. So they're never going to pin it down kind of the gold standard of random experimentation, but shy that. And where you see people making progress are people who, who are focused on this professionals focused on this and have been working on it for months. So for example, IHME, the consortium out of the university of Washington area, Gates foundation based, they got a lot of attention early. They caught a lot of flack early because their models were too simple. They just keep on plugging on, plugging on. All our attention has gone somewhere else. What have they done? They just improved their models. Mm -hmm. And now they've just moved to their third generation model. And they're doing things like incorporating covariates that we've learned might matter, like um, the quality of uh, air pollution, like uh, altitude, these things that have we've learned. And so this is in some ways just like science is supposed to be. They were flawed early, but they were making progress and they've improved over time. And that's what, that's fundamentally how it's going to happen, Eric, of course, how good we ever get, I don't know. But in terms of learning, I think this environment is really pretty good for learning as natural environments go. So let me, let me try to um, ask a yes, no question, um, both to Shane and Adi based on what they said, but I think this maybe will also help our listeners see where we are now. Let's take now whatever June 22nd versus March 22nd. So March 22nd, we'll call a much uh, more severe period, June 22nd now. If I to asked you, is the probability 
let's even say of death, let's condition on all the same X's. So we got the same, because I'm trying to, I want to address Shane's heterogeneity story. So there's no mm -hmm. heterogeneity in the sense of all, you, whatever X's you want on the right-hand side of the equation, we're going to fix those. Let's take two individuals with the same value of X. One got sick on March 22nd. The other got sick today on June 22nd. I'm hearing from Adi that you believe the probability of their death has gone down, even conditional on all the values of X. Now, according to Kate, and I want to, this is, I'm trying to integrate here, building in what Kate said, maybe we're missing a bunch of X's and therefore I'm not allowed to, but I want to address that in a second. Given X, has the death rate gone down in your view? You, you, is X include your, your age demographics, your health? What's an X? All of it. Yes. So you're really just kind of speaking to whether or not treatment has gotten better. Well, and which I believe it has. I do believe yeah, it has. So well, I, I, I would agree, but I also think I also think there's another piece as well is that a lot of cases that were missed in March are not being missed today, and so depend. So that's the issue that makes it kind of complicated. So a lot of people had things that were flus and might, that actually were flus, yet and and they never got tested. But some of those were actually COVID, right? And they and they just got healed and no big deal. Now almost everything that gets that's that's COVID is caught. So you're you're at a different section. You're 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 the problem when you're diagnosed today. You're likely to have a weaker, a weaker case than you were when if you were diagnosed back in March. And just a kind of a quick sort of like clarification. Just talking about, I, I kind of agree with you, Eric, that this is actually NK. That this is a good time to, for learning. I just my point was basically that the kind of scientific learning I think we're going to do about the connection between behaviors. And, and, and COVID is not going to be at the resolution at which kind of like policies are being implemented, like policies are being implemented at like state levels. Yeah. And it's going to be important to kind of what, what we'll really learn about is more going to be happening in kind of very local high resolution kind of cases. Yeah, it's interesting. And so speaking of state level and, and, and learning and getting better with our analysis, did y'all look at this site that I sent around this rt.live site? This mm -hmm. is something, I mean, that, you know, I, I, I haven't dug into it enough to really verify, but they're trying to evaluate RT at the state level. And everyone talks about R naught. That's the, everyone. Everyone talked about that early on. It's like come from a blank slate when this thing first hits. R naught is the spreading rate, right? Yeah, it's how quickly it reproduces versus how right. often people are rolling off of it. So RT is R naught is just R times zero. RT is R any given time. And so they're trying to go out and estimate RTs right now for in every state. And if we believe what they're doing, it's terrifically interesting. And they show that the, the median state in the country is a little bit over one. The, of course, on, R, on this RT idea, you need it to be below one for it to be going down. If it's above one, then it's going up. And so that's the critical value. And the median state is slightly above one. Almost half the states are below. Almost half the states are up. Some are really getting up there. But one of the things that really, so the site is RT.live. RT.live has only come to my attention the last week. I think it's interesting. It takes us kind of further upstream. We've talked early on, we focus on deaths. Lately, we've been talking about hospitalizations. This goes a little further upstream. We don't observe it as clearly, but if you can take their analysis, then it's interesting. The, to me, the most interesting thing is if you rank these states, you sort them right now, according to their RTs, you, the lowest value is Massachusetts. It's like 0.7. DC, 0.7. Connecticut, 0.7. All the way to Montana, Oklahoma, Montana, Hawaii, up there around 1.5, all right? Okay, then it allows you to click to three months ago. What do you think? 
that pattern looks like. It's, it's almost the opposite. It's not as well ordered, but it's almost the opposite. The states that were worse three months ago are the states that are best now. The states that were in best shape three months ago are in general, the trend is, they're the ones that are worse now. This goes to something we've been saying for a while on the show. It's like these, they didn't learn the lesson. It's like the privilege of the Northeast, of, of being in the Northeast or in the Northwest when this thing landed was that you learned the hard lesson, you got good norms, and people learned how to manage it. And now they're paying off now, three months later. The opposite, the, 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 the burden of being buffered if you were Texas, Oklahoma, Montana, is that you didn't ever learn that lesson. In fact, you might've learned the wrong lesson, which was lockdown and don't get the benefit. And now you're paying the price. This seems to be one interpretation of the pattern. Yeah, it, it, only except to just clarify that the price, you know, I mean, in terms of, you know, it, it could be that uh, the other, uh, a counterpoint would be, well, maybe even in these states like Florida, Texas, et cetera, you know, we wrote out that first wave where if there had been a very high RT in those states, they would have been looking at a New York kind of situation. But now that it's like later on, treatments have gotten better and, you know, like perhaps you know, there, whatever kind of wave that's upcoming for them will, will not translate into the same sort of death rates that we saw early on. It yeah, sounds it, like it won't, but we still have to deal with, we've mostly talked about the consequence conditional on getting the, we haven't talked as much about the prevalence and yeah. prevalence seems to be a big story right now. Mm -hmm. yeah, the other thing that caught my eye relates to what you were just talking about, Kate, is that in some sense you're saying across the United States, the curve shapes have, have relatively, there's been a lot of similarity in the curve shapes. The other thing I've been reading lately is comparing the curve shape of the U.S. Like, for example, on the x-axis time, the y-axis number of cases, number of deaths. And there's been lots of comparisons being done between the U.S. and the EU. Right. And theirs has looked literally gone down exponentially. And ours has flattened, not down, but flattened and possibly even going back up a little bit. And right. I find those comparisons really interesting in some sense. Mm -hmm. It's that there isn't some just life cycle that's just going to happen 100% and it's going right. to go down. <laughs> Our curve shape doesn't appear to be the same as other countries has been. Yeah, but the real reason for that is because of what Shane and what Kater alluded to earlier is that our heterogeneity. I mean, we had a huge South that, that just didn't see anything and now they're starting to kick up. And so we, we have a huge geographical heterogeneity, which when we are Northeast looks just like Europe. Just, and that's it's a almost good, a, well, we can uh, test that, Adi. We can test whether well, the distribution we're seeing in aggregate is just a bunch of time shifted individual it's, curves. That's right. Up. But it, it, that's when, listen, if, if you just grab, and I can certainly do this while, while over our break, I'll show you what the Northeast looks like. And you aggregate just the Northeast and it looks just like Europe. If you then look at the South, what you'll see is, is nothing for months. And then all of a sudden, we're starting to kick up fairly broadly. Yeah, um, and, and this is what we're seeing nationally. And, gets, and we get to it, to it. It's very hard. Most of the country had, were, almost all the cases in the country were concentrated in the Northeast. Even places like California, where this thing began in, in Washington, had very few cases. Very they few. did a severe lockdown. They went months without much, much change. And now, it's certainly in some places, it's starting to bump up. And that's creating this, this part of the country is going down and this rest of the country is going up. And, and Europe didn't have that. So one last observation before we go to break, fellas. I've noticed that some of the organizations who forecast have extended their horizon. For the longest time, it was July 1 or August 1, maybe. And now they've poked it out into the fall. And one of the things that happens is they all start modeling the consequence of bringing kids back into school. 
and you get these big spikes in September and it's really, really not pretty in September if, 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 if they go according to the models. And so one of the downsides of having higher prevalence as we end the summer is that it, it's higher prevalence at exactly the wrong time as start, people start interacting more as a result of school. And it's, it's sobering for coronavirus and it's, it's sobering for the conversation we're going to have next, which is the consequence for sports. Yeah, just one quick thing. I don't know if you guys saw it today, but the first I just saw Bowden made an announcement today, just because I've been following what schools are announcing. Basically, freshmen, people that have yet to come to Bowden, entering freshmen, they're allowed to come to campus. A few seniors that are working on master's thesis, but essentially sophomores, juniors, and the rest of the senior class are not allowed to come back to campus. Wow. So it'll be very interesting to see how many universities choose that. Like, we need you to start school in person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe some of you need to end in person, but everyone in between, That's stay home. Really interesting. Talk about heterogeneity, man. Policy is recognizing the heterogeneity at the school, within the school. That's interesting. All right. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. We're doing a one-hour special virtual edition, as we have been during the pandemic. Got the whole crew here, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. This is Cade Massey. We've just rolled out of the first half hour talking about the coronavirus and now talking more sports specific. Guys, coming, coming into today, there's been so much talk about teams shutting down facilities and trends going in the wrong directions and, and sports heavy states that I really want to get a sense of where you guys were on how you think this thing's going to unfold. How optimistic are you that we're going to see sports? And so the question I want to open with is what's the probability for each of the major sports plus college football? What's the probability that a, 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 a national champ is crowned kind of a proper reasonable national champ is crowned. So there's some ambiguity about that, but I want to hear kind of an over under segment here. And I want to put us all on record, but also want to see what your collective wisdom is. So everybody's come up with numbers independently. And let's just go one by one and see what you say. And I'm going to write them down so I get a sense of this because I'm trying to figure out myself. I'm trying to understand what my expectations should be. Yeah. Oh, so when you so, say one by one, we're going to go one sport at a time. Yeah. No, one I want to sport at a time. One sport at a time. All right. Well, highly correlated. I mean, you could, we, I mean, this is a difficult, tough way to do this because once we hear each other, it's going to be hard. We should probably no, we're written down, down, man. If you're not written down, you need to do it right now. I'm, I'm bringing it down. I'm not I'm changing my answers. Just I'm not changing my answers either. All right. Uh, Eric, why don't you kick us off? Well, I'll start with the NBA and I'll give you my number and both why I think. I'm saying 0.75, and here's why it's not higher for me. Um, I believe they're going to start. I'm not convinced, given the coronavirus I'm seeing in sports right now, that they will be able to complete it to the end. So I'm going to say 0.75. All right. Shane? Uh, 60% for basically the same reasons. I do think they'll, 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 they will start, but whether the, enough cases will accumulate for them to not be able to continue. So I'm okay. going to put it at 60. Adi? I had exactly what Eric had, 75%. All right. And for the same reason time. as well, Adi, that just... More or less. I mean, I think the NBA is the best shot of getting started because it's the smallest numbers right. of players. And that's been the question I would have answered a much higher number. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I think this... Is, I kind of want the context of the other sports to know whether you're more or less optimistic about mm -hmm. this particular mm -hmm. sport, but we'll learn that over time. My answer was 66, so it's right there with mm -hmm. you guys. That's going to end up being approximately the average of us, maybe high 60s. Um, 
for a lot of the same reasons. I think they're in relatively good shape compared to the other sports, and they are a functioning league as opposed to some sports, and they've got a plan. And in fact, my understanding is the Toronto Raptors are in route right now from Toronto down to Orlando. So their team is actually going somewhere to play sports, which is kind of fun. They're the first of the teams that's scheduled to arrive. Okay, that's NBA. Let's go back to Eric to start us on another sport. All right, let's go to the NFL. Now, this says more about my belief in the NFL than anything else. I think 90%. Oh I don't think NFL, the NFL is, you know, it's such a dominant sport. They could have a two-game season, go into the playoffs. You didn't say a full regular season. They could have something modify. They could play something. They could start in January and be done in March and April. It's such big business. I'm going 90% with the NFL. <laughs> okay. Adi wants to jump in. I have to jump in because Eric and I are two for two. Exactly 90%. Now, the round number effect is definitely in play here. The reason why we match is because we had the same idea, but then their numbers are, where am I going to say? 75, 90%. But I'll just elaborate with this. I think, I think football is too important to the country. Yes. And that is just so important and that we will find a way to do things that are important to us. And we don't do the things that are less important. And that's a, a, a crucial part of decision-making, uh, cost-benefit. It has to be a factor, right? Shane. All right. Well, I'm going to go with 83% for the NFL. <laughs> round numbers are for chumps. 83 First and two, foremost, round numbers are for chumps. And I, I think I'm a slightly lower on this. What, what My rationale for being slightly lower on this is just that to the extent that there's a seasonality to COVID that we really just kind of don't know about, the that does not that particular seasonality would not argue well for the for you know typically for other viruses that have seasonality, fall late fall and winter are peak times for them and that that would line up very poorly with the nfl trying to finish off its season whatever again let me just say again i didn't say i think they're going to play a 17 week season like that i just said there will be the nfl season will be three weeks playoffs super bowl champ there it is yes give us football um eric the other thing you said is you bent it into 2021 which I meant to kind of exclude, but I didn't. And so fine, but I'm going to, I'm going to take a different stand here. I have them as one of the lower sports. I have them at 33%. Wow. And I, I just think it's fundamentally more complicated with the number of players and support staff involved with football and kind of the, the, the they're not going to be able to put 32 teams into a bubble like you can with, with no. the basketball playoffs or NHL playoffs. And so I think I do, I do think the seasonality is working against them. Shane, as you said, I hear, Eric, the importance of the sport to, but it's just so complicated that I'm, I'm going to take a skeptical stand on those guys and go 33%. I'm really an outlier with you. Let me tell you what would have lowered me, what, what tempted me to say lower, despite Adi and my belief, obviously, and Shane too, about the importance was that, for example, um, are you going to have a team play in a dome stadium? Like it, forget fans for a second, but I mean, just the differences across States, like for example, California may forbid the NFL from being played in the state of California. And therefore we have three teams in California. All of a sudden they're going to have to play in a different state maybe. So those complications wanted me to go lower, but it's the NFL. I just couldn't make myself go lower. I know Eric, let me the thing back in March, a buddy of mine on faculty, a colleague y'all know, says to me, you know, I I don't think the question is whether we're going to have students in the fall. I think the question is whether we're going to have them in the spring. And it was beyond my comprehension. And now it's like totally a reasonable question to ask. 
there were questions that we didn't think we couldn't even take in because they're so beyond our understanding. I kind of think that's the way it is when it comes to reasoning about a year without football. But I mean, reality is every step of the way here so far, things have been kind of worse than expected. And so I think we need to entertain that possibility. Let, let me uh, just follow up about why I think still think the NFL has a better chance, um, even though it has a bigger team. I think the NFL will more quickly shrug off a positive case as to say, you know what? Okay. Um, and that I think is happening kind of much more wildly. Really? Yeah. I mean, I listen, there's a number the of players, players have to shrug it off. The, the players, yes, they're the going to play it off because they're, they're all of all the leagues where the players provide the least amount of pushback. It is the That's NFL. I, I you know, it, it's, That's not, it's, point. it's not, I so much agree with Adi. I think the owners and the fans, the populace will shrug it off for the NFL and the players don't have as much. I just don't think the players what, have whatever, the power to shut whatever it. power, whatever power they had before they have more now. This is a Can new I, year, a new day. And if college football players have the power they've been exerting. Wait till you get to a low number for college football. If you could go below zero, I might be well, at it. Well, let me just throw out one other thing is that this is uh, many places are, are seeing, are, 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 un, are ending their lockdowns. New York City is starting to end. A lot of the Northeast is ending. A lot of Europe and, uh, and are also ending. And those places are seeing cases and they're just putting their head down and going forward. They're not closing an office when they find a positive case. And that NFL, is I NFLPA, think, baby, NFLPA. And, and, and so my general view is, is that many people are, are have to go to work and because their works are opening and they're just not going to close because they someone comes down with COVID and has to stay out. So you're just going to, you know, they're going to tell people to observe your distancing, wear your mask and show up if you're, if you're healthy. All right, let's do another sport. What do you got, Eric? All right, let's go to the MLB. Oh, God. Here, if you say exactly what I have, I, can I go first? I want to make sure that, that you know, guys, I don't change. Remember, I said yeah, I know. numbers by accident. So my numbers <laughs> are the ones I'm reading, but go ahead, Adi. I, I'm saying 20% for the MLB. All right. Which is How's very that, disappointing Adi? to me uh, because first of all, I don't see them. I think there's a significant chance they don't get over their labor fight and they never play at all. Having nothing to do with the COVID just simply because I agree. And then throw in the fact that there's been a number of facilities down in Florida where they found, where they found a number of players. Nobody's gotten sick, to, at least to my knowledge, but, but they found a bunch of positive cases. That sets them back even further. Um, and I just think that the relations between MLB's uh, players and their owners is, is bad, and that just is a, is a, is a snowball effect that's, that right. makes it hard for them to open. You know, it may be. We're, we're going to know more. We're recording this on Monday afternoon. It'll go up on Wednesday morning the thing may evolve in those 48 hours, less than 48 <laughs> hours, because right. they've got some votes coming up. All right, Shane. Yeah, for, for MLB, I, I put myself at more like, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to say 40%, which is higher than you guys. I mean, I'm not, I mean, obviously so I'm not, that doesn't put <laughs> me necessarily in the optimistic camp. Um, I do think that the MLB of all the sports, it, I, most of that 40 low number is driven by the fact that I do not think they'll get over this kind of labor thing. Like I think their probability of not starting is the lowest among all the sports that we've talked about, but conditional on them, do, them starting, they, I, I do think the nature of baseball is one where they're going to be able to isolate a little bit better than, right, you know, I mean, right. it's just not the, the kind of player to player exposure, I think is, is, is much less than the other sports. So yeah. If they were to get the season started, I think they'd have a greater chance of actually keeping it going. Yep. Eric. I actually like – I'll tell you my number in just a second. I like the way you framed that, Shane, because that's really what we should be thinking about. What's the probability it starts? 
Given it starts, what's the probability they complete, let's say, a regular season? Given that, what's the probability they actually have some sort of playoffs? I agree with you. I have a low number. You could have a low number for many different reasons. Sure. In my case for the MLB, I have it. It's not, it's not 0.2, Adi. It's not, a, it's not 20%, but I am at a third. Um, okay. And I do – part of it is because of Shane's reason. I just don't necessarily think they're going to get it started. And the second thing is I just think people are so pissed off at baseball right now that if they start having, like, what the spike they had at the Phillies complex, the Blue Jays complex, et cetera, they'll shut it down. I mean, they'll, they'll shut it down. So I think that's another thing um, that will happen. So baseball, I'm at a third. So I'm, uh, just to round us out real quickly, I'm at 40, which is the same number Shane gave, which is relatively pessimistic for me for the same reasons you guys got. I'm just a little bit more regressive, I think, in my forecast there. Not quite as sure. Um, all right. Uh, let's do one more professional sport before bouncing over to college football. Shane, you want to take honorary Canadian? Oh, uh, yeah. NHL? Oh. Uh, yeah. Basically, I'm going to put those guys at 60% same as NBA. I think it's going to be a relatively similar dynamic. I think um, I think they're very likely to start, but it'll be a similar kind of probably. You know, I have a similar probability of them being able to kind of keep it going. Okay, Adi, I exactly match. I mean, they have a basically essentially the same operation as the NBA too. Yeah, I've matched Shane in his, 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 in his thinking, and therefore I gave it the same number that I gave the NBA, which was 75%. Uh, so. I see. I see. Okay, good. Um, Eric, I had, I had much lower. I had one third, but that was because of the internationalization of the sport. And will all the international players be able to come back? Um, assuming a lot of them have probably left the country. I don't know. Um, and also the, you know, the necessary quarantining. So I had them lower because of the international player base. Super interesting. I like that. Yeah, I hadn't actually thought about that. And I, I guess it is true that there's a higher international player proportion than the NBA now still, right? I would where, where do they mostly come from? They come from Canada, Europe, from Russia, Europe. from Europe? Uh, uh, Northern Russia. Europe and Russia. Europe, yeah. So I, I go, um, I, I'm actually going higher with the NHL than NBA. I go 75%, which is Audi's number, but a little bit different logic. I, I just think they're a little bit more desperate financially and a little bit less, mm-hmm. less strong um, from a union perspective. Um, so I think it's more likely they'll figure out some way and run into less player resistance. Of course, there's uncertainty, but I have them as my highest overall. The football, college is a little complicated, but I have them highest among the professional. Um, okay, so by, before we move to college, let's just say what we did collectively, if we can just average our percentages, we said the most likely is NFL, even though it's also the one that we disagreed amongst ourselves the most on at 74%. Next, NBA at 69, which is pretty close. NHL at 61, and baseball way behind the others at 33. Okay, well, what about college football? Eric, you want to take us back? You said you had a strong opinion here. Well, I don't know if I have a strong opinion. I, I'm at 20%. You have an extreme pr- opinion. Yeah, I'm at 20%. Not because I don't believe in the desperation for money for college football. Not because I don't believe in their corruption. I believe in all of those things. Uh, <laughs> I don't see how. You- Thank goodness we can still turn to those things in these unprecedented times. <laughs> As you said, Shane, there are things we can count on like the sun coming up. And I'm, I'm not even sure. I think I count on the, what I just said about college football more than the sun coming up. Right. Um, I don't see how they can bring, given what happened with Clemson, LSU, I don't see how they can bring student athletes back playing this, playing college football if students at a lot of places aren't on campus, et cetera. So my number is 20%. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm kind of on the looks bad if they do it. I don't I don't like the optics. No, though that's exactly it. I I, I put mine at like twenty five percent, and the reason it's so different from the NFL is mostly the, just the optics on you know, given that these players are not being compensated for what they're doing, the optics on essentially asking them to take like to sacrifice potentially their health, even though they are in a relatively you know un, non vulnerable demographic, I just can't see colleges being able to do that or. What so, what number what number did you give it, Shane? Twenty five. Twenty five. All right, Adi. Well, I think I'm a little optimistic relative to you guys, but not much. <laughs> I was. I'm looking at forty. That's what I wrote down. Oh wow. Let me just say that my number is ten percent, which is the lowest of anybody on any sport, because of the sheer complexity of the sport, mm-hmm. the interaction of the participants with the rest of the world, kind of necessarily. Um, and the completely decentralized decision-making in the sport. I mean, there's going to be a hodgepodge of policies and reactions throughout the 130 or however many we have D1 programs these days. It's going to be a complete hodgepodge. There, I think there's almost no chance that we have a proper season. Now, that said, I think there's a very good chance that football is played and something happens. And it's precisely because of all the cynicism that Eric has voiced. What I, will, I think it's going to be interesting because I think it's going to be a hodgepodge. I think some conferences will play, some won't. Maybe within some conferences, some teams will play and some won't. It'll be, I, there'll probably be some last-minute scheduling flips. I think it'll be utterly fascinating, but a bit of a shit show. And <laughs> I, I think the legitimate championship doesn't happen, but I think some football is going to happen of some kind. Now, it could be possible. The only thing that I would say pushes against that is if it's so bad across the country that it leads to a coordinated response, which seems unlikely to me. And the coordinated response would be to push everything to spring. So, guys, that gives us the, by far the lowest on college football. I want to note that my most pessimistic is on my favorite sport, and Audie's most pessimistic is on his favorite sport. Yes. This one thing that happens in judgment sometimes is that we obsess on – it's not just that we obsess on what we like. We also obsess on what we most fear, hmm. and it kind, of expands our, it kind of expands the support, the judgment we put on it. That's interesting. Um, I was not the most pessimistic on my most favorite sports. That's interesting. Yeah, I was not either. But so, Eric, I don't even know if I could say if you had to. What is your first most fa- favorite sport? Your life, it is baseball, right? No. Um, he's gonna say football. I would Pro say football. being at a game and the whole ambiance around it. I and, and just the history of it. I would say baseball. Yes, I would. Um, but man, I love I mean, NFL, NBA. Eric, yeah, we know especially that. this yes. season, we <laughs> cannot be robbed of Tom Eric, Brady on the Eric, slinging it on the fucking oh, ears, that, man. That would be horrific. No, if yeah, you could, if all sports are going to disappear for the rest of your life, there's only one sport. It's not just about being at the game. It's like there's one sport in existence for the rest of your life. <laughs> I think it NFL, has, to, baby. I, I think it has to be MLB. Oh. It's NFL for me. He's going NFL, I know. Yeah, I'm going college football. You're going college football. This season. No one's even asking me. How come I'm so boring? (laughs) It's more predictable. I mean, are you going to surprise us with your answer? No. Okay. No. But I'm I'm delighted to tell you about my shagging fly balls with my son anytime anybody wants to know. We did that a few times last week. How awful would it be that I've suffered for the last 18 plus years as a Buccaneers fan since the last playoff win, which was the Super Bowl? Oh and God. they've signed Tom Brady and Gronk, and the season's not going to be played probably. <laughs> That's a special <laughs> kind of hell. That's only the Buccaneers could come up with that kind of hell. Really, that is extraordinary. No question. Oh, fellas, we've got, you know, five or six minutes left here. There were some actual sports played in the last week. Real quickly, let's just bounce through them. What is one thing that caught your eye in the world of sports in the last week? 
Well, I haven't really been watching a lot of the games, but, you know, the English Premier League kind of caught my eye just by looking at the standings and what Liverpool has been doing this year. And, I mean, it's, it's a weird – it's always going to be kind of considered a weird year anyway. But Liverpool has played 30 games and has had a win, not, no, no, not tie, a win in 27 of them. Yeah, Correct. It's, really it's an incredible really record. And, I mean, it, it, I mean, I guess I haven't looked enough through history, but that seems somewhat unprecedented to me. That, it would, that you would have that, you know, that somebody like, you know. Played, somebody played an undefeated year. That's like the famous. Okay. Played an undefeated like it without any draws either. No, I think they had some draws. I don't, I can't imagine they had, they won every one. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. But um, okay. an undefeated year at the very least. Eric? Well, I mean, we did have another golf tournament, right? I mean, so golf has now had two tournaments. Uh, they seem to be playing weekly. I mean, Webb Simpson, former U.S. Open champion, won. All the big names are there. They're all rested. They're playing every week. They don't seem what, to be. What ra- world ranking does Webb Simpson have? That's a blast from the past, isn't it? A little bit? He's probably in the top 15 in the world. So oh, he's really? Higher than, huh. No, no, he's much higher than you think. Okay. I mean, he was on the President's Cup team. He's certainly one of the top 10 ranked U.S. players. Okay. 20, I could look, but 2025 in the world. But again, this is what's happening. Every Except Tiger still hasn't played, by the way, and he's not playing next week, which is, again, interesting. Um, we're coming up on the third tournament since the restart, and he's still yet to have signed up for any of these tournaments. Feeding Tom Brady took too much out of him. Yeah, maybe my so. Story. But the part <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to talk about priorities. Which links kind of the sports. Before, side before, before you before you leave golf, Eric, uh, they just announced that the PGA is going forward in August. So it's kind of the it's kind of an old home. It's it's old spot, but they're going to go forward without fans. It's out there in the Bay Area this year. Yeah, the the only thing I'll say is as follows: You talked about it to start off the show, Kate. How there's lots of you know states that are flaring up. Well, let's talk about sports. Nothing's been clean, and here's what I mean. They tried to start off baseball. We know what's happened with the Phillies and the Blue Jays. They've had to shut it down. In tennis, uh, Novak Djokovic had his tournament in Serbia. He goes, we're different here. Nothing's wrong. Okay, well, Grigor Dimitrov now has positive COVID-19, and he was playing basketball with uh, Djokovic, and now all of them are being tested. We've tried to see golf. Well, Nick Watney actually had to withdraw from this week's tournament because he tested COVID positive. So all I'm commenting on is let's not confuse starting these sports with what's going to happen two weeks, four yeah. weeks, six weeks yeah. into the season because they yeah. may not finish. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just going to return to – I think Audie kind of had the right perspective on this, that, like, yes, if, if these leagues are going to shut down the second, like, a couple pe- uh, of people start, start testing positive again, yeah, there's no way they're going to be able to continue yeah. that. But it's they're just not sort do of it. like how much – how many po- like what proportion or how many positive cases will they be able to tolerate and continue their operations? I think there's two things. There's I think there's there's also not only just positive cases, but because of the way that the testing regime is done, they do it every day, and people are being tested over and over again. Um, I think that it'll take more than just a couple of positive cases, but really a genuine, deeply sick and and potentially dying person. To make a any chance there's some, I, I, I hate to even suggest this, but there's some pre-committed threshold. Like as long as less than 3% of the players test positive, we're going on. You know, is there, is there even, or is there some, even if it's not explicitly stated, do you think there's some number in mind? Because we all agree, you might as well not start if any cases shuts the thing down. Right. Yeah. It needs to be a little robust. That's right. There needs to be a robustness plan. But guys, before we, before we wander off completely, I want to say that I did have a pretty pure 
sports um, audience member experience this weekend. Did any of y'all catch the Belmont? I my, did. Delightfully, my wife popped downstairs and turned on the TV just in the last few minutes before the warm-up, which, you know, it's only three times a year, but that's a good, you know, that's a good little half hour. If you only get the race itself, it's a great two minutes. I mean, it's always mm-hmm. fun to soak that up. And so they ran it, they ran it a, a mile and a quarter instead of its usual mile no, and a half. It was a first mile and eight. Um, they ran it shorter than they usually do. It's usually the longest of the triple crowns. Tis the law won it. It was, the, he was the favorite won it big going away. New York bred horse first time in a hundred plus years or whatever it is since a New York bred horse, but it was just fun to have it back. And it didn't, no, st- team, no fans, no, no fans. fans, but on the, on the, you know, what you really, what you really enjoy about horse racing on TV is the call. The call is so delightful. Right. So in, for a TV audience, it wasn't bad to have, it wasn't bad to have no fans. Yeah. I loved, I loved watching the race. The only thing I'll say was um, to my deathbed, tis the law did not win the Belmont. That was not the Belmont. Yeah, it wasn't sure, the third triple sure. crown race. It wasn't a mile and a half. The first part of the race, as you remember, Kate, wasn't even on the track. Yeah, it was, was on funny. the feeder to the track, yeah, which funny. led to the straightaway. So mm-hmm. Tislow was the favorite, great horse, but that wasn't the Belmont. It's not hard. You scratch a little bit and you uncover a purist on this show. <laughs> there are some to be had. <laughs> there are some to be had. All right. That has been another Wharton Moneyball. We do this every week, even during the pandemic. We've been coming at you virtually via Zoom. You've had the whole crew here. Many thanks from all of us, from Shane, from Adi, from Eric, and from Kate, and from Matt, Maddie Dats, our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll be back and do it again next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sport. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School of Business, Department of Statistics, and it is my pleasure today to interview... Maria Konnikova. She is an author and a um, and has just written and will be releasing a new book called The Biggest Bluff. And we'll be talking about that today. That's her third book. And her second book was called The Confidence Game, another fabulous game about con men and how they influence and work the world. And her first book was called Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. So Maria, great to have you here. Um, not in the studio, but... Um, doing the best we can. It's so wonderful to be back. Yeah. Um, I really want to talk you through some of the incredible insights of your journey that you outlined in The Biggest Bluff, which of course is about your transformation from someone who didn't know the rules of poker to essentially professional quality. I just want to make sure that's correct. You really didn't know how to play poker when you started this. That is indeed correct. In fact, not only did I not know how to play poker, I actually did not know how many cards were in a card deck. That was the extent of my ignorance. That would have been a very big problem. That was corrected very early on. For some reason, I was positive there were 54. Okay. Um, Yes. You were positive. Well, that's because of the jokers. And when you probably played as a child, those jokers do come in. And I understand that that, that mix-up quite quite handily. All right. So I'm going to ask you, I'm just going to preload this question. Listen, I want to know... Um, what motivated you to undertake this project? And basically, just before you answer, 
um, since you didn't have any familiarity of, with poker at all, did, did it ever occur to you that this was insane? And um, <laughs> just before you started, it just this kind of seems, and this is why, of course, it's a fascinating journey because it seems so crazy. And I've read your books and I'm very firmly convinced you're an awesomely smart, incredible person. And so is your goal to sort of just prove that to the world, to yourself? Um, how did how did that become even your goal? And did it surprise you that you were able to to do this? Well, um, to answer the various parts of your question, <laughs> um, I had no idea what poker was. So originally, what I wanted to do was write about luck and the role that luck plays in our lives and how we can learn to tell the difference between what we control and what we don't control, right? Where are the limits of our own actions? Where are the limits of our own decisions? Something I'd been thinking about for a long time. Um, when I was a grad student, um, I actually worked on the illusion of control. So the illusion that oftentimes very, very smart people have when they're not in control of events that they still are. And so I'd been kind of mulling this over for a long time. And I was wondering, you know, how do I enter into that topic? What's the book? Right. That's not a book. That's just musings on chance and the role well, of chance. It could be a book. It could be a book, but it's not, it's not, a st it's not a story. There's nothing. Not it's, it's very broad. It's a, it's a huge topic. It's like a philosophical inquiry it would have been a very different type of book. So I started doing a lot of reading and one of my friends suggested that I read up on game theory. Because they said, well, if you're interested in chance, you know, game theory is an interesting framework for kind of figuring out how, how to think about decision making. Um, and I read about game theory in the past, but I'm not, I don't have an economics background. My background really is psychology. So it's not something I'd ever studied in depth. So I decided to pick up the theory of games, which is the foundational text of game theory. And I learned that one of its authors, John von Neumann, wasn't just a poker player, that poker was actually the inspiration for game theory. And that this brilliant mind, so von Neumann's one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, not just the father of game theory, but the father of the computer, um, on which we're talking right now, hydrogen bomb, the guy worked on the Manhattan Project. I mean, just all over the map no in doubt. terms of what he, he was capable of. science knows von Neumann. Right. Yep, exactly. Um, and that really interested me that he thought that poker was a really good analog for human decision making. And the reason he thought that was that poker was a game of incomplete information, that there was information I knew, information you knew, information we had in common, and we had to make the best decision we could knowing that we didn't know any, everything. That there was always going to be uncertainty there. And also knowing that any outcome could happen that we can't predict the cards. And so our decision quality is actually separate from the outcome. So you have the skill element, you know, how well can I decide given incomplete information, but then you have this outcome, which might actually be different. So I might make the best decision possible. I might get my money in, so to speak, as a favorite. Um, and then the cards can go against me, but that doesn't mean I made the wrong decision. And when I was reading his rationale for choosing poker and thinking that poker has this solution to strategic decision making, it made a lot of sense. And I thought, this is really interesting. Um, this could be a really good way into the problem. Let me 
read up on this poker thing. And so I started reading up on poker and I thought, hey, why don't I learn how to play poker? I've never played before. Why don't I use that as my journey? And I didn't forget the second part of your question. Did I think it was insane? Absolutely. Um, and everyone thought it was insane. Let me just, because, just interrupt because I read yeah. the book. And in, in, just to give you, our listeners a context, you had to travel to New Jersey, Hoboken, because that's <laughs> New Jersey to where you are, because it's legal to gamble online in New Jersey, not in New York. That's for the background. Um, and you sat in a cafe and I mean, you do this day in and day out and it just seems insane only because you're in New Jersey. All right. Let's just not rag on New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. Um, but the, just the process of it, just to do this so intently day in, and it's a slow going. If you, one thing you get from reading the book is it takes a long time before you can even play comfortably. I mean, so it just seems to me like what kind of tenacity do you have to pull this off? Did you, I mean, I mean, I guess you, when you're writing a book, it, these things are long projects. You really are playing the long game. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea how this was going to play out at all. Um, and all I knew was that for the book to work, I need to really dedicate myself to this. I need to give it my all because if I am trying to learn something, anything on a short timeline, you know, I need to be dedicated to it. And I don't half-ass anything. That's just not the way that I work. Mm -hmm. If I decide to take something on, I'm going to do it. And at this point, actually, you're describing my early days of poker when I went to New Jersey almost every day um, and it was exhausting and I didn't love sitting in a cafe all the time, but I had taken on a coach. Well, he had taken me on, um, Eric Seidel, who's one of who's the best players in the world. How did, you knew each other from other circles, we, I guess. We did not know each other. Oh. I cold called him. Cold I'm a journalist. Call. I'm good at cold calling. Mm, okay. <laughs> I, uh, I wanted the guy with the visor from Rounders. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and he also happens to be one of the best players in the world. So, so that was, that was good. Um, but he told me, you know, if you want to learn any this, you need to get hands in. And the only way to get hands in in New York and the way to do it quickly and get hundreds and thousands of hands in quickly is to play online. Um, and so he said, you know, you have to do this. At this point, I had not sold the book because I, so you keep saying this seems insane and I agree. And so I wanted to have a proof of concept first. I wanted to see, first of all, am I enjoying this? You know, do I, do I think that mm -hmm. poker is an interesting game? Because if I start playing and my response is, yuck, this is terrible, I don't want to spend a year doing that. You know, that's, that's not what I want to do with my life. Um, Turned into more than a year. I mean, it was. Yes, it ended up, it ended up being multiple years. Um, but originally, I didn't know it was going to turn out to be multiple years. I, I was just planning for a year. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, exactly. I had to figure out, does this work in terms of theory? Does it work in terms of what I want to do? I mean, mm -hmm. I get what von Neumann wrote, but can I, am I starting to get any of these lessons? Is it going to work to explore what I want to explore, you know, skill versus chance? So I needed to make sure all of those components fit together. And so at the beginning, I was actually still at the New Yorker, still writing and playing. So I would, you know, go on, go and play for three or four days a week. And then I'd work over the weekend and, you know, and we, I would figure it out. And then uh, as it started working, I sold the book and so then, and, and then I left the New Yorker. And then you're committed to, uh, to making, to, to, to seeing it to the end. Yes. All right, I have a whole bunch of questions related to some of the things you've already spoken about. Um, so I'm going to start off by describing uh, something that is often well known as the 10,000 hour rule to becoming an expert, um, popularized by Malcolm Gladwell, largely thought of as a terrible 
um, but pithy description. And so I'll give you what I, what I generally think of it. And I want to ask you how you sort of fit in on this. So many hours, let's call it 10,000, is maybe average uh, to become an expert at something. But there are those who do it in a lot less. And there are those who do it in a lot more. And there are those for whom no amount of time will be sufficient. So I'll turn it to you now. You have genuinely become, I guess you would maybe not necessarily agree, but I'll, I'll label you an expert in poker. Are you a super learner? Or are you... Did you take it? Didn't couldn't have taken you ten thousand hours. I don't think you had that many. Um, did you really pull this off? Because you are there are those in the world who have that ability to be to super learn. Are you one yeah. of those people? You know, I um, I'm not a fan of the ten thousand hour rule the way that it was initially yes. um, put forward, and I make that very clear in the book. I mean, you need to practice, but that's not sufficient, and. Um, a lot of other things have to come together. By the way, I, sh- I should say, since um, it's on my mind, Anders Ericsson, who actually did all of this work, um, unfortunately died this week. Um, uh-huh. so, so the creator of the original 10,000-hour uh, rule um, on whom on whose work um, Malcolm Gladwell based his entire book. He never used those terms, by the way, in his book. In his he, did, he never did, no. That's but he actually was very, um, I loved speaking with him, but um, he was a brick wall um, and he would not change his mind. He thought that it was just practice. It was yeah, a very, I, I, very uh, difficult thing to convince him that genes matter, that a lot of, that talent matters, that all of these other things matter. I, I, I will just segue just on that because he came to Penn and, and he was, he actually, I had the opportunity to interview him on the, on the radio show live in the in the studio um and and one of the crazy detours we took is um we started talking about singing and i had mm-hmm. an alternate life before i was a mathematician as an opera singer and he essentially, <laughs> <I love> that. <laughs> he essentially was telling me that anybody could learn to be a singer and i just stood there thinking to myself this yes. is insanity you you just have no idea yeah um I mean, and I'm someone who did not eventually go the full route because I didn't think I had it in me to do the 10,000 hours that it would be necessary. And, and right. opera singing is even, you can't really pull off an all day opera singing. You can't sing for more than eight. You can't sing more for really two hours a day because of the toll on your body. Um, that I just didn't have it. And I decided I had another opportunity and I moved on. And I just listening to that, I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is, this is a, as you say, a brick wall. Yeah. All right, so we agree so, about that, uh, about the 10,000. So we agree. Um, but I will say that if I had to conjecture, well, as I was reading the book, and I, you know, it's in fairness, I knew the answer. I think I'd seen you on television uh, already playing significantly high-quality poker. That's that's the part of the lack of mystery of it. We kind of know you make it um, from the very beginning. But my real question is to you is, to, to you is did you, do you have this ability? I mean, because there are mm-hmm. people who really can learn in 1,500 hours what, uh, and, 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 you know, something with they sure. really are fast learners. Um, I don't think that it's true of everything. You know, I am, there are certain things that I'm very, very bad at. I don't know how to drive a car and my hand-eye coordination is non-existent. Mm-hmm. So if you were to tell me, you know, I'm going to make you an expert golfer, no way not going to happen. I'm not talking about competitive level, just someone who's good, someone with whom you'd want to go golfing. That's not going to happen. I can't, I'm not going to be able to hit that tiny ball with that tiny surface area. Just my brain does not work that way. So I know, and I'm never going to be a competitive race car driver because Mm. (laughs) once again, I don't know how to drive a car. It scares me. I don't like speed. Like it's just not going to happen. So I think that, um, 
I had a few things going for me. So it turns out that poker was actually well suited to a lot of my talents um, and to a lot of the things that I was already good at. So I could leverage a lot of the skills that I had picked up in psychology, in journalism, you know, the skills of observation that I picked up, um, knowing a lot about cog cognition. I had this metacognitive awareness of myself going into the process. I think that helped. And yes, I think you're right. I do learn well. So mm -hmm. I'm someone who, and this is, it has a genetic component. I'm someone who has a quality that my uh, graduate advisor, Walter Michelle, used to call butt in chairness. <laughs> so mm. I'm able to keep my butt in chair. Um, I don't, <laughs> what? We call that OCD a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not OCD, but I'm very capable of concentrating for large periods of time. I'm capable of studying hard. I'm capable of working hard. And I always have studied very effectively. Right. So people would always borrow my notes in college because my notes were shorter than everyone else's because I was able to kind of get the gist of the lectures and they tended to be what was on the exam. Um, so, so I was someone who, I'm someone who does have like a good ability to grasp a lot of information quickly and to synthesize it and, and to analyze it. So, um, but I will, I just want to ask, cause one of the things that you think about with poker is math. Um, yeah. Do you have a ability no. for math? No, my last math class was in high school. Oh. Um, and I have not done anything with math since then. So yes, I do have a PhD in psychology, but I actually hired professional statisticians to run my stats analyses. And I'm glad I did because they had no idea what my hypotheses were. So they were able to do just a complete blind analysis of the data with no biases or anything like that. But my models, everything that's in my dissertation was built by people whose profession it is to do that. So let me ask you, speaking, going back to poker and learning, the classic kind of balancing act, in, in, if you will, about people always ask this, my daughter, who I told, I told her I was interviewing you today, she said, so is it psychology or is it stats? It's both. <laughs> it's both. Become... So how would you, okay, so yes, I know it's both. Um, but how do you generally feel the balance lays out? I mean, so... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. And I don't think there's an answer. I think it depends on who you are. I think you need to leverage what you're good at. Mm -hmm. I think if, you're if you want to become good, you need to have both. You can't just be unifocused on... I just made up that word. But you can't be unifocused on, on one or the other. Um, and there are people who are. There are some people who say the math is bullshit. I don't want any of that. You know, I'm just going to... I play the person and that's, I don't care about your math. There are other people who say, I don't care about all of that psychology crap. You know, I'm going to run my simulations. I'm going to learn my game theory and that's what I'm going to do. I think the best players know that it's both and that you have to combine both. Now, what combination depends on the player. You need to know yourself and place your strengths. What Eric Seidel told me when I was just beginning and I was really worried about the math is that you didn't need beyond basic math. You know, if you can add, subtract, multiply, and divide, you'll be okay because you can then calculate pot odds. You can calculate those types of things. And that's really all you need. Um, and he was right. And yes, sure, advanced mathematics can help if you want to go further in that direction, but you'll be okay as long as you're proficient at math, as long as you kind of learn to, to do those 
basic pot odds. You know, do I have the right odds to call? What are my outs? How much do I need to bet? How often do I need to win if I bet this much? How often do I need to win if I bet that much? And that over time becomes second nature almost. So at the beginning, it was really hard for me because I, and you know, I'm not ashamed to admit this and it's, it's true. I actually count on my fingers. I still do. It's something that I've always done. And there's actually something very, um, I don't think it means that I'm necessarily horrible at math. It's just, I'm a very physical, like, right, right. I need to feel it in order so, to do well, it. I guess one of the things that you're able to do is to recognize that there are, you know, it's, there's only a certain number of, of configurations. You learn how to organize them. You're good at organizing and distilling. And you essentially learn what the right things are to do from expert tutoring and books. Yes. And so, cause I always found I've played my share of poker never bother to consult anything or anyone. Um, and so I get in a position, I'm sitting here calculating. And of course, that's no fun when everyone's asking me to play. Um, I'm like trying to figure out, you know, what, what is the, you know, trying to re- remember, try to calculate all the, all the odds on the fly. And that's because I, I, that's, that's my strength is mathematics. And that's just, you can't do that while you're playing poker. You've got to work it out ahead of time. Right. Otherwise, so, otherwise you want to make the right decision. Exactly. And if people have worked it out for you and have kind of told you what to do in, in, in that sense, then I think that you can just play to your play to your advantage. So for me, my strength is psychology. For Eric Seidel, that's his strength. But that doesn't mean that I don't use math. But there are people who are mathematicians. Yeah. I mean, there are people who have PhDs in statistics who are professional poker players. For them, that's their strength. And they will know all of these nuances that are going to give them, you know, 1% edge here, 1% edge there, and that's going to really add up. And they might not be as good at picking up on some, you know, live psychological dynamics that are going on. So they'll lose an edge there, but they'll have it in in the math. So pick up your edge where you can. So I love there's a there's a great moment in the book where you make a realization and Eric really teaches it to you. He says to you, you're coming in too high in the tournaments. And 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 so and I understood exactly what he meant immediately, but it was a great realization. And so the idea being, if there's ten thousand, just threw that out as a number uh, entrance, and you were consistently coming in the say top one quarter, that's a problem because you're actually too unlikely to come in the top five or top one. Um, yes. And so do you want to explain how that, that's, that's a sure. classic uh, statistical idea of a risk reward balance. Yes. And that you have to take chances if you, and particularly if the reward structure is, is highly nonlinear as it is in the poker tournament. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this, uh, this realization happens pretty early on um, in mm-hmm. my, well, about six months into my poker playing. Um, and I'm not very happy with it. Um, but I'm very proud that I've been cashing in all of these tournaments. And there's a term in poker that's called the min cash. So say you buy into a tournament for $100. So the way that prize money works is that it's really distributed. It's very heavy up top. And so say 10 people cash um, and maybe the person who cashes in 10th place gets $120 or $110. So you make a little money on your entry mm-hmm. fee and the person, the next person who's the bubble person gets zero, but then first place is $10,000 or something like that. That's actually the degree of the disparity. Now, if you're someone who consistently cashes, um, but you're always out right away, then that means you're actually losing money because think about what it takes to enter a tournament. It's not just the entry fee. It's also the hotel and the travel and all the tournaments you're not cashing in. So in order to make money at tournament poker, you have to come in near the top. And so you should be aiming, as I found out, you should be aiming to cash 
less frequently, but go deeper. And so you need to take more risks. What I was trying to do is just squeeze into the money. And so I would become incredibly risk averse in order to do that. I wanted that $110. I wanted to say I made that money. You know, I, I didn't lose yeah. my $100 buy-in. And so people would bully me around. They'd be very aggressive because they understand that dynamic. People who are professionals who, who've done this for a long time and they understand that there are people like me who are so scared of busting before the money that basically I'll fold anything. And I did over and over. And so Eric said, your cash rate is actually too high. What it's telling us is that you're too risk averse. You're coming in with not enough chips. You're not taking the chances that will actually enable you to make it to the top. And if you want to succeed here, you have to make it to the top. Otherwise, you're just going to be bleeding cash. So speaking of bleeding cash, so one of the things that I was a little bit um, looking forward to hearing, I didn't actually get it, and, and maybe you have reasons for it, is you never really gave a full accounting. So um, you talk about making a little bit about not quite making it or making it or in the end of the uh, at the end of the basically by the time you decided you you had enough and you're writing um were you positive um yes you so you definitely managed to make make me so now i'll ask you another question did you think of yourself as a, a level of a professional poker player at that time well, I mean, at that time when I finished, I was a member of Poker Stars Team Pro and I was playing full time. So I think I was the, you know, I was an ambassador for one of the biggest poker companies in the world and a member of their professional team. So I think. So you, you think you did it. So, so, but here's. I mean, my, I, I was, and my, my, my income for over mm-hmm. a year was entirely from poker. So I guess that's the definition of doing it professionally. I was earning zero from everything else. So here's my question. So, so I've written, actually written fairly extensively about poker, well, games in general and poker and specifically on the, essentially the, the balance between skill and chance. Mm-hmm. And the key idea, what defines a game of skill um, it's very hard to do uh, mathematically. A lot has to do with what we call the learning rate. So, mm-hmm. and, and the way I like to think about it is levels of a ladder. And you have to, um, and a game of, uh, the more skill a game is, the more levels of learning there is in the ladder. Mm-hmm. And and the levels of the ladder actually mean things. Obviously, you can only, you can't, um, the basic idea that is when two, when, you, when you're playing someone a lower rung in the ladder, you should consistently defeat the, those people. And so, uh, a game is a bigger, has more skill if there are more levels of the ladder. That's basically how you how you define it. So the classic, so maybe a game of chess is certainly skill, but even say a sporting event like tennis is a masterfully skillful game because there's incredible numbers of levels of the ladder, and to get from one level to the, to the next is a lot of work and a lot of training. And when you're on a higher level, you almost always beat, you know, regularly defeat the people lower. Mm-hmm. So how would you think of yourself on the on the poker ladder? I mean, one of the things about about you obviously climb pretty high on that ladder but there's but you definitely understand that there are probably people way above you on that ladder and oh below 100 i mean there's not just there are lots of people above me i mean i i think i would not consider myself in the top tier of poker players mm-hmm. um i just think the game is so complex and i still have so much to learn um and my learning curve is still steep it's not it, i'm still not not shallowed out yeah exactly and so and so i still i feel like you know as i play play more, as I study more, as I learn more, um, I get better. And the game also is not, the game constantly evolves. And so you need to keep learning. And I think that's true of all sports and all, and all professionals. Can I ask you though, one of the things that I always find interesting is that given once you're at a certain level, I mean, 
you're probably playing lots of other professionals and high quality yeah. people. I always thought that when I would play poker, the first thing you do is you figure out who, who you're going to get the money from. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and how do you do that when you're at what level point are you playing consistently against very good people? Or is there, or is the goal of a professional poker player to, to always go out and new into new horizons and new, new frontiers and find uh, weak players? What's well, how, how do you, yeah. yeah, I think poker is um, a very interesting game in that regard because it's certainly a skill game. Um, there's no question. And over time, the best players are going to take all the money from the worst players. Um, but, you know, there's a long time horizon. However, in any given tournament, um, someone who's a complete amateur can win because yeah. in the immediate term, the luck factor is actually pretty high. You know, I could play heads up with Eric, my coach, mm -hmm. and we are on completely different levels. I mean, he is just eons beyond me. We could play heads up and I could win. I could beat him. And heads up is just one-on-one -on -one poker. Yeah. And that wouldn't be because all of a sudden, you know, he's taught me everything he's, <laughs> he knows and I'm a better player. I'm a much worse player, but, you know, in a one-time interaction, anything is possible. Yeah, and but I that's think not... that that keeps, so, so let me, I'm still, I, this is to answer your question. Mm -hmm. I think that that element keeps amateurs who uh. don't want, who um, don't play all the time. It keeps them entering all of these tournaments because they think, well, you know, they see that and they say, well, I could get lucky. And they also underestimate if you don't know poker well, if you don't play it well, you underestimate the level of skill. You think it's actually a much easier game than it is. And there are enough people consistently who underestimate the level of skill and think, oh, I'm, ju I'm just as good as that. It's so funny to me. And I, I mention it briefly in the book, but it, so many people t stop Eric and just tell him, you know, from, you know, waiters bartenders, Uber drivers, just everyone and say, and they recognize him. He's very recognizable. And they say things like, oh, you know, I'm actually just as good as you as I'm just as good as all those guys on TV. I just need to get my big chance. Do you want to stake me? Do you want to give me money? And, and they truly believe it. They truly believe it because it's also so easy. Poker is also something where you see it on TV, you see all the hands and you're like, oh, I can do this. This seems so simple. You right. don't understand just how hard it is whereas people don't normally you know watch a tennis match and say oh i can do that poker is like writing you know people think you know you just sit there and i know how to read so of course i can write a book and in poker they say well i know how to you know i can get cards dealt and i i can bluff i can do that yeah. there's no there's no work to it and so those people will always exist and those are the people who keep the poker economy going Right. And I guess one of the things that, that I've always said about poker is that, yes, it is unquestionably a game of skill, but because it has a large chance component, it does give and it really does have a large chance component. We can talk about that specifically. And, and, and tournaments are certainly cash games. They're, they're all a mixture of the long run and the short run that does give that gives individuals the illusion of, of allows them to have the illusion that they're better than they are. Exactly. And that's exactly. how, and that's why it's called gambling. It still is gambling. Um, on one hand of poker, it's a gamble. It's it, over thousands. It's no gamble, but in one, it's it's a gamble. Sure. Sure. Um, and you, you know, you wouldn't play. Uh, I always like to say I wouldn't play Roger Federer or tennis, no matter how good I was, because it's ridiculous. Um, but I'd play. I, I would play a hand of poker with anyone. I mean, particularly sure. if you limited the stakes. <laughs> it's not going to be um, such a big deal. 
right, so that's that's absolutely so so that's kind of how it works. I mean, there's st- still a certain level of of people out there that are that are willing to play with you, often for the thrill of it, or or just because they think they're better than they are. All right, I mean, you you um one of your chapters actually just uh, reprinted a piece of it in five thirty eight. I saw you talk a lot about um how you're never due for good cards, and yeah, this yeah. is gets back to I guess your original purpose, which is to try to understand the, the relationship between chance and decision making. Um, so do you want to elaborate on that? Sure. Absolutely. Um, a lot of people conflate, you know, what, what probability distributions are supposed to look like in the long term with the immediate term. Mm-hmm. And they think that, you know, if you flip a coin um, 10 times, five of those should be heads and five of those should be tails. But that's not how it works. You know, variance doesn't care what it's supposed to look like. It only looks even in the long term. And the long term, you don't know what the long term is. You know, it can be 100, 1,000, 10,000. There's actually no way to predict because the curve is not, it can be skewed. And you can be in one specific part of the distribution for a little while. So there are poker players who run like God for a year um, and then regress to the mean. (laughs) There are poker players who run terribly and then regress to the mean. And so... When we're not running well, people always think it's like, you know, the coin has come up has come up heads five times in a row. The next time must be tails, especially if I'm tails and tails is my outcome and tails is the one that I have money on. And so when we see these sorts of um, things, especially if we're on the bad end of it, we think we're due. We think that, you know, well, this must even out. If my aces got cracked and I know that I got my money in, you know, as a 75% favorite, well, and I already, they got cracked three times in a row. That means that they can't get cracked anymore. That's <laughs> how variance works. <laughs> no. yeah, I always like to tell, I always like to tell my students who, who, who think this is true. I said, where do the, where do the coins or the dice hold that information about the past? In exactly. <laughs> exactly. There's no memory. I mean, chance has no memory. Chance doesn't care. It doesn't know what your outcome no. was, right? It didn't know what cards you were like. It's not like the deck knows that you, that you, Maria, have already had your aces cracked today. There's, that, there's no fairness to it. I mean, mm-hmm. fairness has nothing to do with it. And yet our human mind, we're so bad at probabilities and we're so bad at figuring out that the long term and the immediate term don't look alike. I actually, I had a really fascinating conversa- conversation that I relate part of um, in the book with Frank Lance, the gaming center at NYU. And Lance used to be a poker player, very serious, and is also a game designer. So someone who has actually worked on the design of a lot of computer games. Mm -hmm. And he explained that oftentimes their quote unquote random number generator is not random because people complain. They start saying the game is rigged because if something is truly random, then all of a sudden you might be getting, you know, a bunch of these outcomes in a row. And so game designers say it's bad game design to have you know, a, a actual random number generator, actual randomness. And Apple so made that same why. decision about its play, its shuffle play. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so Frank actually says that, well, poker is theoretical. It's horrible game design because poker is true randomness. And he loves it about the game because it forces you to confront your delusions. But if you just listen, if you take just five minutes to start scrolling through what's called poker Twitter. <laughs> so people wow. who are poker players on Twitter, all of a sudden you're like, this site is rigged. This site is rigged. This site is rigged. They keep thinking all of these sites are rigged because they're not rigged. If the sites were actually 
rigged the way that other games are, then you'd be seeing a much more quote unquote normal distribution. But the poker sites, they, you know, they just let it be truly random. And sometimes that really doesn't look like randomness. No, it doesn't. As as we probabilists have known for a long time, I, I wrote my dissertation on uh, on pattern matching. Um, so that was that was so long some years ago. But I surely know exactly what you're talking about. So, may I ask you a final question? What is yes. up next for you? Do you have a new project that you're percolating, or you're going to play the poker tour for a while? You know, I think I think I'm taking it one day at a time. Um, mm-hmm. No one could have predicted that my book launch would look like this. It was out June 23rd. We were supposed to be in the middle of the World Series of Poker. I was supposed yeah. to be in Vegas right now. The main event was supposed to be starting in a week. Um, and we'd planned it all out perfectly to maximize the, the poker impact. And obviously none of that happened. And so I've just adapted the the mindset right now that we just have no idea what the world's going to look like. So I'm going to focus right now on this book and on doing as good a job as I can with it. And then we'll see what's next and take it from there. Well, it was an incredible pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Wharton Moneyball. And we look forward to speaking with you again. Thanks so much, Maria. MLB Network Radio. For expert baseball talk and analysis, it's MLB Network Radio. Bill Ripken. The longer the dark horses stay in it, the more they believe and things can happen. Jim Duquette. It's so bad. Something has to happen. Todd Hollinsworth. So many different guys are contributing. That is absolutely sustainable. Jim Bowden. He could have told that lineup it's coming. It did not matter. Talk baseball with experts from all perspectives on MLB Network Radio.